You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. The focal passage is found in John chapter 19, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 19, verse Beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter, invite you to read along. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have one that we would love to gift you by the Connect desk. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was also who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. You can now have a seat, and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Um, My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here and thankful to be able to to do this. I get to do it a couple times a year and it's a a lot of work, but it's also a privilege. And so uh, I know we've prayed a couple times, but we can never have enough prayer. And I want to pray for us before we get started that, uh, gosh, that my words would be helpful, that you would be able to receive not my words, but God's words, and that we would be able to enjoy this time together. So pray with me as I pray aloud. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the music we were able to worship with and enjoy. And God, I pray that we would um, desire you this morning, that uh, we wouldn't have on our minds next things after the gathering and details of the next week, but God, that we might enjoy you in this moment, that we would set our minds to to chasing after you, that you might help us to enjoy you, that you would help us to, to just enjoy these words today as heavy and as kind of weighty as they are. And God, I pray for myself that, that all that I say would be good and helpful. And, and God, I pray that it would build up our church this morning. 
God, we need you. We want to love you more. We want to be a church that is built up by your word and then sent out to then live on mission. And I pray that that would happen at this time. And we pray this in your good name. Amen. Um, Oftentimes, a person's last words are what is most remembered by others, right? And so in preparing for this message and in light of kind of Jesus' last words from the cross today, I did a quick Google search for like some humorous last words to kind of lighten the mood just a little bit this morning. And so here are some humorous, famous last words as we kind of set the tone for what's happening today. Poet Dylan Thomas said, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's a record. And those are his last words. General of the Union Army, John Sedgwick. They couldn't hit an elephant at this disc. And those are his last words. It, it didn't go well. In, in beloved Mexican revolutionary, Pancho Villa, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something important. And those are his last words, according to Google as well. These are examples, certainly, of funny last words. But they're also, um, you know, last words are what we remember, right? There's, there's weight there. And a lot of times that's what the person wants to get across in his dying moments. And when death draws near, what is said in those final moments is one of the most memorable things. In our focal text today, we're going to look back on Jesus's last words from the cross, right? And my desire today is that we not just remember what he said, because we know it is finished in our heads, but we get to look at why they impact us today. Why are those words important and why might those words be like the last thing he said from the cross? So if you're new here today or if you've been tracking with us for a while, we are in a sermon series from John and the, the tag for that is that you may believe. And, and the, the, John's purpose for writing his book was to kind of spotlight the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in an effort to get us to know and believe like who Jesus was and all that he did for us. And in John 20, 20, 31, I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but he says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in all that he's written, you might have life in his name. And that's my desire this morning to kind of talk from John and, and through this text that we might believe more in who Jesus is and that we wouldn't just know more, but that it would then spur us to action. And as an eyewitness, John's purpose for writing this book was to spotlight it. And so as we look through John 19, 28 through 42, we are going to consider Jesus's last words this morning. We're going to look at evidence, like fulfilled prophecy that proves that Jesus was who he said he was. And we're going to see people who were once kind of scared or embarrassed or timid to identify with Jesus all of a sudden take courage because of the cross and then identify with him in ways that motivate them to action. And here's why I believe our text is helpful for us today. If we don't believe that Jesus has done all that is necessary for our redemption, then we will constantly be striving and working to do our redemption or to to gain our redemption in other things. If Jesus' work isn't enough, then every thought, word, and deed that we say and do have eternal weight, right? And that's kind of crushing. And we then we begin to ask questions, right? Like, have I done enough? Am I a Christian? How do I know if something I've done has like nullified salvation or added to my salvation, right? And the weight of this is, again, overwhelming. And if we also don't believe that Jesus' work is enough for our redemption, then we will let others shape how we think about our redemption and shape what we do and how we think about ourselves. If our identity is not anchored in who Jesus is and his finished work, then we will look to a person or a system for approval and for identity to let them tell us who we are and what we should be doing. 
And in this scenario, our lives will constantly be shaped by other's approval or disapproval. So the question I want us to think through as I give this message today is this. Do we live like it is finished? Because I think we all know this, most of us know this text, right? The, the death of Jesus on the cross is not a new text to many of us. But what I want us to think through is do we live like it is finished this morning? Not just know it as a fact, but do we live differently because of Jesus' proclamation from the cross? And here's the main idea. It'll be on the screens for us. Um, believing that it is finished frees us to embrace our true identity. Believing that it is finished frees us to embrace our true identity. And there are three points this morning. Um, the proclamation, it is finished. The authentication, you know, it is him. And then the identification, we are with him. Simplistic points, but I hope to build these out in a way that makes sense for us this morning. So the first point is proclamation, it is finished. And today's focal passage includes the final moments of Jesus' life. It's almost like a deathbed scene in a little bit to where, you know, many of us have maybe been there where there's a loved one and there's these final moments and it's weighty and it's precious. And we get this kind of scene here this morning. And in Jesus' final moments, God the Father's wrath has just been poured out on the sun. Jesus right now is on the cross. He's naked. He's been beat to a pulp, basically. He is drained physically. He hasn't slept for at least a day or two. He hasn't eaten in a while. He hasn't drank very much. And so physically, right now, in the state that he's in, he is drained. He's been tortured to the point that he didn't even look human. Isaiah 52, 14 says this, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so this text tells us that it was so bad that, that he did not look human. You would look at him and say, gosh, that's rough. And Jesus also was physically broken, but he is also relationally broken as well, right? Every sin that you and I have done was placed on him in that moment. And when that happened, God the Father turned his back on his son. And because of this, God the Father turned his back. In these final moments, Jesus was separated from his father and his family and most of his disciples. And somehow, through all of this, he's cognizant enough to know that his work on the cross is coming to an end. And I have to think this is in the, in the pain and in the agony that he's in. This has to be a triumphant moment. Um, and so this takes us to Jesus' final words. I'm going to read um, John 19, 28 through 30. And I invite you to join with me. John 19, 28 through 30. And that Pastor Adam read it, but I'm just going to read it again to kind of get us in here. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus' final words were that. And John tells us that Jesus knew that he had done all that the Father had asked him to do. This plan of redemption from the beginning of time was at last going to be complete. And there was nothing left at this point for Jesus to do as well. And in Jesus' final moments in critical condition, he drinks something, sour wine, so that he can finally declare, it is finished. And he cries that out. And then the Bible says that he gives up his spirit and he dies. And I'm not going to dive like way into Greek stuff here, but something that is cool, and maybe you've heard it before, is, is the word, it is finished. Something that he yells out is actually one word in the Greek, and it says, it's telestai, and it means all has now been completed. 
And when Jesus yells this out from the cross, like his final words, he is saying that there's nothing more that you or I have to do to, to um, receive redemption or to receive forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more that he has to do. It is finished. And so what is the significance of this? What are the significance of Jesus' proclamation, his final words? It's truly that, that all that was needed for our redemption has been accomplished. And that's kind of the main idea under point number one is that. All that was needed for our redemption has now been accomplished. In our everyday lives, we rarely hear words like it is finished or there's no more work to be done, right? Like for us, a lot of times there's always something to do and we might literally drop dead if, if say you go to work one day and they're like, Jerry, there's nothing to do. Go home and take a break, you know? And you're like, what? You know, like we just don't hear that. There's always more to do. It's, hey, get on that real quick or this thing's blowing up over here. We need you to do this. Or maybe you're a parent at home and, and what if your child came to you and said, hey, you know, why don't you take a break tonight and I'll make supper and I'll clean up the house, right? Like we don't hear those words. Typically for us, it is like, I need more. It's go, 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 or, or please do this. But when Jesus declared it is finished, it really means that we can breathe, that, that there's nothing left for him to do and there's nothing left for us to do. So in kind of clarifying what happened on the cross just a little bit, I wanna look at four key words that will help us to better appreciate and understand what he did and what was accomplished on the cross. And these will be on the screen. Um, the first word is expiation. Again, not trying to be big or whatever, but this is a word that is used sometimes. And what that means is Christ's death expiates or removes sin and guilt. We as humans, we know that we are sinful, right? We feel guilty for our sin but, but God removes our sin and guilt on the cross through the work of Jesus. Even though we still sin today, we are no longer held responsible for that sin because it was placed on Jesus and he took that punishment. So expiation is Christ's death in it that removes our sin and guilt. That's, that's word number one. And the second word is propitiation. Christ's death removes the wrath of God that we justly deserved for the sin that we committed. And more than that, not just removes like God's wrath, but it adds to us his favor. So it's kind of like a dual thing. And it's actually incredible when you start to think about it. That's, that's um, propitiation. And John, 1 John 4.10, it says this, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Word number three is reconciliation. I know I'm flying through these, but these will be on the screen as well. Just wanna give us a brief overview of all that's happened. Christ's death restores or reconciles our relationship with God. Sin is broken, the relationship with God and man in the Garden of Eden, you know, Adam and Eve sin. They do some stuff, they turn from God and instantly there's a severing there of the relationship. And through the Old Testament, there's a prediction that someone will come one day to restore, to mend, to reconcile that relationship. And Jesus does that on the cross. He reconciles our relationship back to the Father. And our final word, the fourth word, is redemption. Christ's death sets us free from the power and captivity of sin and death. Jesus paid the debt that we owe to God, and we are no longer in the captivity of sin. We, we have, by God's grace, power over sin and death because of what he did. Christ, at every point, meticulously undid the mess that we got ourselves into and turned Satan's plans to destroy Jesus on his head. And when Jesus died, there was nothing left for him to do. 
and there's nothing left, church, for us to do as well. The proclamation is good news for us this morning. It means that we don't have to earn God's love. It means that we don't have to wonder if we have favor with God. It means that we don't have to wonder if he is hating us more because we did something this morning or if we've done something right that, that we're all of a sudden have more favor. There's none of that. Because of the words, it is finished, we get to just live as children of God, being a part of his family, not having to earn a spot in it, but because we, we are in it. We get to enjoy the favor of God. We get to rest in his forgiveness, being thankful for the real sacrifice that he made. And there's a kind of quote that goes around that says, you know, salvation is free, but it wasn't cheap, right? And that means it's free for us. We didn't have to do anything to earn it, but it certainly came at a costly price to Jesus. Because it's all about the work that Jesus did, we can't mess it up. We can't add or subtract to the redemption he provides. And if we continue to struggle with a specific sin, like I alluded to earlier, we get to remember that it is finished, right? That we are not condemned anymore if we fall back into something or if we continue to struggle with something. And if we did all the right things in a day, and if we feel really good about ourselves because we nailed it that day, we get to remember that it is finished and there's nothing we can do to add to our redemption or to make it better or more secure. So where do you find your rest today? Do you find your rest, your, your peace in remembering that it is finished and that, that there's nothing more to do for your redemption? Or are we looking to our achievements and approval for others to, to, to kind of give us that assurity? As an example, if you're serving today in any capacity, you know, why are you serving? Is, is it, if I'm serving and if I'm serving somewhere to be noticed, right, then maybe I'm doing it to earn an approval from others, to, to have them tell me that I'm enough. Or maybe if, if we're hoping that we're serving and that God sees us and that we think maybe he's more happy with us because we served well today, then, then we're not resting in the fact that it is finished. We're trying to think that, that something we can do can add to God's approval of us or build up that approval. And those are certainly misses. Your serving, my serving, does not make um, you more loved or redeemed. And I would encourage you to remember that it is finished and to know that a healthy rhythm of rest starts by believing that Jesus has done it all. If your life feels crazy, gosh, I know there's details and I know there's seasons of life that are bigger, but if your life is in a constant turmoil and chaos, maybe start by remembering that, that Jesus has done it all and that your busyness or all the work we do is, is not maybe necessary at all. And I would encourage us to celebrate this truth as well. Um, I was a part of a call and that was really helpful from, from some people here in this gathering today uh, about a week or two ago and they were helping me think through some stuff of the message. And one of the examples they gave was of Dave Ramsey's debt-free scream. And instantly some of you were just like, oh my gosh, he's not gonna pour this on me, right? And some of you are, love this, right? Because you're just like, that was me! But in, if you don't know it, just briefly, because I'm, I'm gonna share it with you. Like, he is a financial person who has set up a, a plan to take you from being in debt to getting you out of debt to having some savings. And again, you can hate me afterwards. You can hate him. I'm just telling you an example, right? And so basically what it is, though, there's, there's, you work through your plan and you save and you, you sacrifice. And at the end, you're invited. If you go through this process and you get out of debt and you save some money, then you're invited to actually go to his location, his business, and the interview and the culmination of this whole process is that you get to yell, I'm debt free. And it's, it's like a celebration. And for these people, when you watch, and some people have done it here, there's like tears because they know what they've been set free from, right? Financially, they were in debt and maybe they felt hopeless. 
and maybe there was weight and pressure and stress. And, and, and now at this point, not that their life is perfect, but that's gone. And they scream, I'm debt free like that. And, and when, I, when they said that, it was, it was good because if that's the response to being um, set free from like a financial debt, how much more should we, should we celebrate being set free from a spiritual debt this morning? And I, I pray that we are a church that celebrates being set free spiritually. And it, it's so easy to know, again, that Jesus died on the cross, right? We all know that. Check the box. I learned that when I was five, or I learned that decades ago. But how often do we celebrate that God died for us and that there's nothing more we can do to add to our salvation? And I, I hope that even as we sing this morning, as we sing after this message, that that might trigger in our brains just a, a humbleness, a gratitude for who God is, and that we might celebrate more because of that. Remembering that Jesus did all that was necessary for our redemption should lead our hearts to genuine and consistent celebration because it is finished. That's, our, that's point number one. And this all sounds amazing, right? If it actually happened. And I'm going to show you that it did. I'm not trying to raise doubt. But this is our next point, the authentication of Jesus, that he is the guy that people are looking for, and he did do these things. So in the second section, John provides eyewitness accounts and examples of fulfilled prophecy to prove to us, to get us to believe beyond anything that Jesus is who he said he was, and that he did do what he um, said he would do. But before we jump into things, here are three details that will give us a better understanding, because I'm not going to read this second section of text, but um, it is some stuff in here which I want to just kind of tease out just a little bit. So three things I want you to know before we jump in. The day of preparation was the day where um, the Jews did a lot of their work to prepare for the Sabbath where they didn't do work. And the day of preparation was on a Friday, and so the Jews did a ton on there so that they might engage in like rest and prayer and other religious activities on the Sabbath, and they were, they were free to do that. Um, and Jesus was, the next thing is, Jesus was crucified on this day of preparation. So you're thinking he died on a Friday, that's what scripture tells us. That was the day of preparation when all this work was happening for the Jews. And then um, he um, then Saturday came when the Jews wanted to rest. And also this was like a bigger weekend when Jesus died as well because it was Passover. And so the day of preparation and the Sabbath was like heightened. It was bigger. There's more crowds and around. There's more celebration, more people because this was like a pinnacle point of the year for them. And third, I'm sure you all know this, but there was a law in Deuteronomy 21 that said bodies of hanged criminals were not to defile the land by remaining on a tree overnight. And me and my family tried to observe that consistently. We don't have many hang criminals on our lawn or anywhere else, but the Jews did as well try to observe this. And so Jesus being on a cross right now at this time was a problem for them, right? Like they're getting ready to celebrate and they're wanting to make sure they observe the laws and enjoy Passover. And Jesus posed a problem to them doing that stuff. And so to summarize our text, John is trying to approve the authenticity of Jesus through his eyewitness account and through prophecies fulfilled. And what he wants us to know, and he talks to this, he kind of goes into detail, and I won't read it right now, but that he was there. He, he was with Jesus for at least the three years that Jesus did his ministry. He was with Jesus from the text that Pastor Michael preached last week. He was at the foot of the cross as, as Jesus was there and gave his mom to John to be taken care of. So we know that John was very present all the way through what was going on. He saw this, John saw the soldiers come and double check with a spear, and he, he saw the, the trial and the crucifixion. And secondly, John highlights the prophecies as well. He's like, if that wasn't enough, if, if what I saw and I'm telling you is not enough, there's more. 
it was predicted that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. And through this text, we see that that is fulfilled. And that's kind of a, a check in the box that this guy is the guy, right? Like we're seeing these prophecies line up and we know from Old Testament, a lot of the stuff is happening. And then all of a sudden, John's checking these boxes in his brain saying, ah, there it is, that happened. The second prophecy that we're gonna um, talk about real quick is um, it was predicted that they would look on him whom they have pierced. And that's coming true, right? There, John, right there, is looking on his savior nailed to a cross, nails in his hands and feet. And I'm sure these things are clicking in his brain. And John adamantly tells us that what happened to Jesus was the exact fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the guy that we've been looking for and he is the one that we can place our trust in. And the big question for the Jews was they knew a, a person was coming, right? Like I said, from Genesis 3, there was a prediction that, you know, hey, there's a person that will bruise, um, you know, Satan's head and Jesus' heel will be bruised. And they didn't know who this was. They didn't have social security numbers to identify a person. They didn't have, you know, eye scanners and stuff. And so they had some prophecies to give some sort of, um, you know, imagery to who Jesus might be and what he was, but they didn't know. And that's why John is so adamant saying like, no, he's checking these boxes. All that was mentioned here, this is the guy. And John says, as an eyewitness and from fulfilled prophecy, this is Jesus. And church this morning, I know this will sound basic, but Jesus is the one who brought redemption to his people. And I wanna emphasize not the fact so much that he brought redemption, but he's the person that they are looking for. We can trust that, that things line up, prophecy lines up and eyewitness accounts add up so we can believe that this really happened. What I want us to know this morning because of this, why this is important, is because I know that many of us in here maybe at some times have doubted our salvation or a part of it, right? Like, and I don't know if that's you or not this morning. Maybe no one here has, but I've had conversations with people that maybe in, in some part of their life, like, man, is, is this really what it's about? Is, did Jesus really do this? Am I placing my faith in the real thing, right? And these questions pop up. Is Jesus the guy? And John wants us to know with confidence that you have placed your faith in the right person if you're placing your faith in Jesus this morning. I did some research into how many Old Testament prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And from all that I found, it was at least 300 to maybe up to 600 prophecies. And so that's pretty incredible, right? And again, I'm not just trying to bombard you with facts to get you to, to believe this, but I want you to know there's proof out there. There's, it's not one or two prophecies. It's not just one eyewitness, but there's a ton going on to, to help us believe that this is an accurate account, that Jesus is the guy and he did these things. Psalms 34, 20 says this, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And Zechariah 12, 10 talks about looking on him who they have pierced. I'll read two more. In Psalms 22, 16 through 18, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And lastly, Psalms 19, 21, and for my thirst, this is in our passage today, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is just a, a sample of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And because of this, I believe that we can, again, anchor our confidence that this is the guy. And when we confidently believe and know that he is the guy, then we can more easily combat the doubt that sometimes rises up, right? It's not easy. And I know because of just this little section of scripture and what we've talked about, probably all doubt is not removed. But if you're struggling with that, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you about that. And I hope that maybe because of some of these things today, you might be a little more confident 
in your faith and that Jesus was the guy. Jesus is the one that was prophesied about and Jesus also did die for our sins, right? Again, maybe it sounds basic, but if he didn't die, gosh, this changes everything, right? If, if someone else died or if he didn't fully die, then that changes things. And I want you to know this morning, John wants you to know this morning that he did die. John is obviously convinced of this this morning. And as he mentioned before, he claims to be an eyewitness. And in um, um, John 19.35, he literally kind of checks himself three times. He says this, he who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth. Like, I don't know how more adamantly he could say it, but he's like, I promise you, like my conscience is clear. This is the guy. Like, I'm not lying to you. I'm telling the truth. It's very vivid that he wants you to know that like this is happening. But there is still more evidence to the death of Jesus beyond John's account as well. First, um, the crucifixion was very public, right? It mentioned that this was like Passover week and there was crowds there, right? There's tons of people in Jerusalem and, and this, this uh, crucifixion was not done in like a private spot. This was out in the open, right outside of the city and multiple people saw this, crowds were there. Pilate was, he was overseeing this whole thing and, and it was very visible from a crowd perspective. Secondly, the soldiers were convinced that he died as well, right? Um, they are not easy to fool, I would think, as they nail you to a cross and have done this multiple times. Um, you know, I don't think they're gonna be tricked. And then to, as like a final blow, they do the old spear in the side trick to like get it for all good, right? Like, hey, is Jesus dead? Let's do this. And if he's not like, ow! You know, like that probably is enough to know that Jesus died on the cross. And then third, this is, we'll get to this text in just a second. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus's body. And we'll study that in just a second. And I would have to think that they would know if Jesus was dead as well, right? They wrap him up, they cover every part of his body with linens and ointments. And I can't imagine they would have done that if Jesus was still alive. In, common, in, in summation of this, it would be a greater miracle to go through all that Jesus went through and fool all the people that witnessed him and still managed to escape with his life somehow. And I'm not assuming again that you will never experience doubt again because of these things. But I hope that as you consider these details, it strengthens your belief in Jesus. He is the one the prophecies told us about and he did die on the cross for our sins. And there are many ways to respond to this, right? One is certainly obviously salvation, right? Gosh, because Jesus died, then we get to place our saving faith in him. But more than that, I hope that we might receive comfort from this this morning. Many of us have loved ones that have passed away. Um, my wife's grandma is near death right now, right? And so we're thinking about death and many of you might have death experiences, right? Like we think about our own death sometimes and what that might be and how that might be. And sometimes that's kind of terrifying. And what I want us to know from this text this morning is that we are not alone as we experience death, right? It feels lonely. It might feel terrifying. When, when someone is passing away around us, we're like, what do I even say to comfort you? But what I want us to know is that we are not alone as we experience death. Jesus has gone before us and experiencing pain and loss and rejection and death. So we don't have to go through it alone. Some of you might know Timothy Keller. Um, he's a pastor that I've, I've enjoyed listening to his messages and, and listening to his books. And, and he passed away this last Friday at the age of 72 from pancreatic cancer. And gosh, that's, that's a loss for us as a, as a church. And we've enjoyed him and, and grown up from him in that. And these are two quotes that he said. Um, and one of the quotes was kind of near the end of his life. And I just, gosh, I thought this was so appropriate. These are 
literally almost Timothy Keller's last words. There is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. That's what his son said was one of his final last words. There's no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. And in closer to his death, he also said this, all death can do to a Christian is make their lives infinitely better. And I hope that we take comfort from God's words and think on death like Timothy Keller talked about here this morning. We get to do that because Jesus went before us and because he is with us. He experienced it. He can relate to us as we think about death and as we experience death around us. And because Jesus experienced death, we can be comforted and know that death is not the end. So we invite you to place your confidence in him this morning because he is the guy. Point number one was Jesus dealt with his final words or Jesus' death dealt with final words. Point number two showed evidence that authenticated Jesus. And point number three is this, it's identification. We are with him. In our last section of scripture, it deals with the burial of Jesus. It's weighty, it is, it's sad, and also for us as Christians, we know that we know what happens next, but I'm not gonna tease it out. Pastor Scott gets to, to bust into that uh, next week and we're looking forward to that. But this is me speculating for a second. So what I'm gonna say is, it's, it's not off, but it's also not in here. I think for Jesus's family and his disciples and followers, even though Jesus was on the cross, I have to think that they thought there was still like a chance, as long as he was alive, that, that he could do something, right? As, as long as he was alive, he might do a miracle. He might, you know, someone might come and rescue him or that something was gonna happen to where this wasn't the end. I have to think that they were waiting there like, come on, you know, do something. But as Jesus's breath breathed his last, as he breathed his last, all hope seemed to fade away with that breath. And, and one by one, people left being like, it's over. And John gives us this next section of scripture to show us that even in the darkest moments, God is still at work. Even in the death of his son, God is still very much at work in the lives of the followers that were around Jesus. So let's take a look at how two men responded to the death of Jesus this morning. The first guy is Joseph of Arimathea, and I'm gonna read two kind of parallel verses. One is from John and one is from Mark, and they're kind of the same thing, but Mark shapes it just a little differently. So here's John's first, and I'll read Mark's. John 19:38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, this is after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body away. And this is the parallel passage, which gives us just a little bit more insight. This is Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph goes to Pilate, the ruling Roman representative, say that three times as fast as you can, and asks that he might take the body of Jesus and give it a proper burial. So that's, that's guy number one. Push pause there. We're gonna go to Nicodemus. In John, in John 3, Nicodemus is a, a Jewish ruler. And, and you, maybe you know the story. He comes to Jesus that night. He is kind of high up with some Jewish officials. And because of him being worried about what they're thinking, he sneaks through at night to go visit Jesus. And he's asking all these questions. He's like, you know, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus is like, you need to be born again. And he's like, how am I gonna 
enter into my mom the second time. And Jesus is like, no, it's weird. It's, it's like this and stuff like that. And so he's getting all this figured out. And Nicodemus is curious. He's got all these questions. And at the end of their meeting that night, we don't actually fully know what Nicodemus is thinking, right? We don't know if he's all of a sudden a believer in God. We don't know if he's like, this is, this is crazy. But when we get to this text today, we start to see um, where Jesus or where Nicodemus is. In John 19, 39, we see him hauling 75 pounds of spices around to anoint Jesus's body for burial. And so we kind of get a clue that, man, this is sinking in. Something has changed in Nicodemus. I, I have to think that this is not like a private deal, whether he's got people helping him or what, hauling this around to go help bury Jesus. And so together, Nick and Joe take Jesus down from the cross. They haul him to a new tomb, wrap Jesus' body with linens and spices, and they lay him in the tomb together. And again, this is not a, a secret deal, right? This is not like a, a five-minute deal. Have you ever tried to haul around a body and just like, I probably, hopefully we haven't, but like if you have, you, you can speak up. Like if you haul around and that, I would think it's heavy. It's probably gross. And I just think that this is not an easy, quick deal. They have a lot to lose from this, right? By, seeing, by being seen, bearing Jesus, they can probably risk reputation from the, the Jewish leaders that they were with. Maybe they're risking money and, and the job status and even maybe physical safety as a result of being seen with, with Jesus and, and bearing him and being identified with him. And you have to think that all this seems a little out of character for men who are so nervous about being associated with Jesus early on. So the question is, why do these guys do what they did? Why were they so nervous and timid and sneaking around at night and all of a sudden now visibly doing things that were kind of bold and, and more courageous? And this is kind of the declare point for, for point number three. Understanding the true identity of Jesus frees us to identify with him. So on the screens, understanding the true identity of Jesus frees us to identify with him. These guys got it. I, I think that on the cross, something clicked that was like, this guy isn't just a good teacher. This man on the cross is not just a good person or whatever anyone else might think he is. They, they clicked that, that this was the son of God. They were so convinced in Jesus's identity as the son of God that they were willing to give up their status, their acceptance, and maybe even their lives to identify with him. And that's amazing. I'll say it one more time. These men were so convinced in Jesus's identity as the son of God, they were willing to give up their status, their acceptance, and maybe even their lives to identify with him. Before these men knew much about Jesus, they were hesitant. They were unsure to be associated, but the, and the, they looked to the religious systems to kind of give them their validation and security, and that's why they were embarrassed early on. But I have to think that it all came together at the cross, right? On the cross, they saw this and they saw who he was and they saw how he acted and interacted with his mom and with John and it, it all clicked. And what I want us to know too is that the cross speaks the loudest to who our God is. I think that's why this shaped them so, so or, uh, impactfully. The cross speaks the loudest to who our God is. I, I believe it's the greatest display of the fullness of God. And again, I could be wrong with that. This is my thoughts on this. But on the cross, you think of what happened. It's, it's Jesus' sacrifice for us. His love is on display. The wrath of God is on display. Forgiveness is at hand. And, and all of the attributes of God kind of come together and we see the fullness of God on the cross. And, and Nicodemus and Joseph saw this as well. And after the cross, Joseph takes courage 
and goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus publicly helps to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And they weren't afraid to identify with Jesus after his death on the cross. And guess what? This can be true of us as well today, right? Maybe, maybe there's some tough times with identifying with Jesus. Maybe we're nervous in certain circles or certain crowds to be like, I'm with, I'm with that guy. He's up here now in heaven, but I'm with that guy. You know, like, I don't know what it is, but that could be tough for us. But anchoring our lives in the identity of Jesus frees us to identify with him as well. That's what I want us to know this morning. Anchoring our lives to who Jesus really is will free us to, to boldly identify with God. If Jesus is who he says he is, and if he, John, or if he did what John said he did, then why wouldn't we want to identify with this person, this, this God, this, this king and ruler who was predicted to come? Who could love us like Jesus loves us? And who would sacrifice for any of us like Jesus sacrificed for us? And why would we look to anywhere else for validation and for approval after him just inviting us into his family and doing all that he did? Why would we look to a political system? Or why would we look to anything else to say, do this to, to earn this? I want each of us to see the work that Jesus did on the cross and to see him for who he really is this morning and to let that boldly motivate us to identify with Jesus. When our identity is anchored in him, it frees us to talk about him. And when our identity is anchored in Jesus, it frees us from, from trying to impress others, right? In our example of, of serving this morning. And when our identity is in him, we can be honest with our flaws and, and engage in community, in community groups and in, with friendships and let people know that we're not okay, right? If, if we have to put on an image and if we have to impress others for their approval, then, then we're gonna have a shelter. We're gonna have a shield around us, right? But when we remember what Jesus did and that our identity is with him, that frees us to kind of let down and say, you know what, things aren't okay. I am struggling with this. This thing is tough for me. And that frees us to just be who we are. I want us to be the church, a church that knows our God and finds our identity in him. And I want us to experience a boldness like Nicodemus and Joseph did this morning. And so here's some application for this third point. Is there anything hindering you from boldly identifying with Jesus? All of us have something, right? None of us are this Paul-type figure that's going to just lash out and, and say everything, right? I have something. I, there's, there's stuff for me when I'm out on a sidewalk, and I know maybe God's putting in my head to share the gospel. I'm like, but what if? And how am I going to? Like, there's, there's something inside of me, right, that's just timid. And I, God, I, I pray that I would be able to have this boldness as a result of this message today, but I want to grow in this. Are you worried about what your peers might think? Do you question if Jesus is really worth identifying with sometimes? Or maybe, are you worried about the consequences that might come from identifying with him from certain friendships or peers or, or relationships? What I want you to know, like I said, is that we all, I think, can relate to this, right? Like, you're not the only one here if you're saying, I have some struggles with this. I can relate to this as well. And secondly, and more importantly, what I invite us to do this morning through our time of, of response, and it's not yet, but through our time, is just to ask God to help us to see Jesus more accurately Ask him to show us, gosh, what he did on the cross. The words I had up on the screen, the fullness of all that he did is amazing. And I, I hope that spurs us to, to identify with him. Pray that God would help you to remember what he did for you and ask for a desire to identify with him. And secondly, as a 
type of um, application. Is there something in your life that you need to boldly trust God in this morning? Is there something in your life that you need to boldly trust God with this morning? Is God calling you to a task? Is he, he calling you to give up something? Is he calling you to step into an opportunity of service? Is he calling you to engage in some way, right? And maybe you're timid. Maybe you're saying, I don't know if it's you, God, or I don't know if I can. I don't know if whatever. And what I want you to know this morning is that, gosh, we get to do that with the freedom of knowing that if we fail at it or if we miss on something, guess what? God loves us. He's done the work. It's, it's not about our efforts. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with someone or maybe it's using your gifts in a specific way. But I pray that whatever it is, we would be a church that is so convinced of who our God is that we would boldly identify with him and take on whatever he puts in front of us. We are with him. And in conclusion, um, in looking for famous last words, um, I came across what are said to be Buddhist last words. And I'm not going to preach from anything Buddha says, but they're very appropriate as we kind of wind things down this morning. So I want you to consider what his last words are. This is what he says. Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things, all component things in the world are unsettled. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own redemption. Um, man, I read that. I was like, oh my gosh, that is like the opposite of what Jesus has said from the cross as well. Those are the opposite of Jesus's last words. And I think that most of us here, hearing those words, would acknowledge that that sounds so hopeless. Can you imagine being on your deathbed as, or he's on his deathbed and you're like one of his disciples and he's like, nothing's finished. I'm leaving you. And you gotta work really hard to figure it out. Like that doesn't leave us with a peace, right? These last words are the exact opposite of, of Jesus's words from the cross. This is where the sermon comes. Hear this. My fear though is that we know Jesus's words, but we live like Buddha's last words. We know in our heads, gosh, it's finished, right? We can repeat that. We know the facts. We know why that matters, but we live our lives striving and working to earn something that we have freely. And the irony in all of this is that we, like the Jews, tend to push Jesus aside so we can work for a rest we will never find. Jesus was on the cross and the Jews were embarrassed of him. They're like, get him off there, break the legs of these guys and hurry up to death and let's get him off here. And in their hurrying and in their work to get him off the cross, they didn't know that Jesus was the one trying to give them rest, finishing the work that he had for them. And, and oftentimes I and, and maybe us live like Buddha's last words, even though this whole text is about rest and, and, and enjoying all that God did for us. So this brings us back to the question at the beginning of the message. Do you live like it is finished? Do you live like it is finished? Does tomorrow, when it comes, do we live like it is finished? If so, praise God and continue to enjoy him. But if not, please consider in this time of response, why? What are the things that keep us from resting? What are the things that we're striving for to earn that maybe we already have in Christ? Is it salvation? Is it identity? Is it something else? And my prayer and desire for each of us this morning is that we join with Nicodemus and Joseph in believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And he did the work that he set out to do. Jesus has completed his work so we can quit striving and experience his rest. And we don't have to earn God or look for anything else to justify us. But only when we believe that it is finished are we then able to freely find our identity in him. And this gives us boldness 
to then be sent on mission as we leave here today. It gives us a boldness to, to leave these doors and to interact with people. This gives us a freedom to lay down our striving so that we may enjoy the one in whom true rest is found. And this frees us from looking to anyone else for our identity. Believing that it is finished frees us to embrace our true identity this morning. So we are gonna go into a time of response. Um, you know kind of how this goes, but you're welcome to sit there and pray. We invite you to, to just be for a second. Think on some of the questions that will be on the screen. Listen to if God's trying to press anything upon your hearts. And after you do that, there will be people, I think, over there by the red tree that would love to pray with you. I will be uh, kind of over here and I'd love to pray with you. There's also a prayer bench over here. And after you spend time with the Lord, gosh, we get to enjoy communion, which is literally our text today, right? We get to remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us. These are the crackers that we remember. We eat them remembering his sacrifice in his body and we drink the juice remembering the blood that was literally shed from the spear that was rammed into his side to prove that he was dead. So as you, as you take of this, please just pause and rest and think on that. Praise God, confess sin, whatever God brings to mind. And if you aren't a Christian this morning, communion is not for you, but, but we would love to talk with you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We seriously mean that. Please if God's working your heart, don't leave here. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about it. So check out the questions on the screen and take some time to pray. And then we invite you to join with the band as you guys are welcome to come on up um, as they worship, lead us in worship through song. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll invite you to do these things. God, thank you for this passage of scripture today. I pray that we would maybe see this with newness of eyes this morning, that there would be a freshness here. Um, God, I pray that these wouldn't just be facts that we hear this morning, but that what you did on the cross might change us to, to identify with you, to enjoy you, to celebrate in new ways this morning. And God, let it lead us to repentance. And let it lead us then to mission. God, we need you. Please work in us. God, please give me and us the desire to see you for who you really are as a God who gave everything that we might be a part of your family. So let us trust in that this morning for salvation and for our, our everyday lives. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.